Hi and welcome back to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. In this episode, we will talk to Cassie Kazerkov, Chief Decision Scientist at Google. Cassie has provided guidance to more than hundreds of projects and designed Google's analytics program, personally training over 15,000 Googlers in statistics, decision making and machine learning. We talked to Cassie about her role, difference between decision science and data science, and some of the common mistakes people make in machine learning and data science. Thanks a lot uh, Cassie for taking time out for uh, this podcast and really excited and looking forward to to the discussion. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thanks. So, can you tell me uh, a bit about yourself, your background, uh, how did you start in uh, data science and you were a statistician uh, by designation before. So, can you tell us a bit about your journey, how how you got into data science? Sure. Well, you uh You've opened up Pandora's box there by asking where I started. Because <laughs> uh, the real answer to that is, um, and I think it's a, it's a funny sort of perversion. At age eight, I, uh, I discovered Microsoft Excel, and I thought it was the most beautiful thing on the planet, wow. uh, which is not what most eight-year-olds do. But I had this <laughs> gemstone collection, and um, I would I used that collection as an excuse to enter all this data about what was the stone called and what color was it and what was its hardness and I would learn about these gemstones and collect more and more of them just so I could have this large data set of them. Mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed playing with data as a kid while everyone else was playing outside and by age 11 I was uh, earning some pocket money doing data entry. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was uh, 16 or so I had um all these huge spreadsheets on all kinds of personal biometrics um and study habits and all kinds of other things and I started learning about you know how to do some forecasting of when sleep deprivation will hit or what happens if I'm dehydrated now how soon will I feel it all kinds of uh, fun stuff like that which I suppose yeah. is, is not what most teenagers are doing <laughs> and I fell into that in the same way that I think a lot of stat folks do we don't really understand what statistics is which is a it's a deeply philosophical pursuit and i like to think of it as the science of changing your mind mm-hmm. but uh, the way that that kids like myself fall into it is hey i like data mm-hmm. it is fun why don't i go into this thing called statistics because there's no other thing for data mm-hmm. and um i found that really easy you know probably comes from having been playing with this for most of my life while everyone else is uh, is <laughs> learning other coping skills Um but at the same time I suppose I'd found data so easy and so pretty so beautiful but I hadn't really ever been in awe of it and mm-hmm. hadn't particularly you know, found it magical or worth any more respect than anything else gets mm-hmm. and I didn't find it to be particularly important on its own but what seemed important was decisions mm-hmm. now a lot of folks I think uh, treat data as inherently important but really in my mind i sort of see that every everything our senses perceive is data mm-hmm. it's sometimes not recorded very well by our brain our memory is imperfect but you know uh existence is the collection of data so it's everywhere it needn't be treated as something all that special and this this business of using a capital d to pronounce data has always uh alarmed me a little bit when i've seen people doing that So data on its own was never that important but decisions on the other hand actions these are how we affect our world this is how we have impact on reality around us and so that always seemed like the important thing for me so i i studied data because that was easy and because it was pretty and beautiful and um i studied decision making because that seemed like the thing that was really the crux of the matter so Mm-hmm. The, the the decision sciences they're they're really great at studying how people actually execute decision making but they're not so good at teaching or training uh, their practitioners in how to actually take information at scale and improve decision making in the way that the data sciences do mm-hmm. but the data sciences on their own they are actually 
um, only covering sort of a middle bit of a longer end-to-end process that begins with what actions are worth taking, how should we frame decisions, and with those decisions. And so if those bookends around data science aren't well constructed, thought through, framed, Mm-hmm. then what the data scientist ends up doing is completely useless. Mm-hmm. And so for me, covering that entire spectrum was always extremely important. And so I ended up with far too many majors um, and too many <laughs> degrees, but um, I was persistent. And, and so I spent a lot of time in the academic environment studying all that. But at the same time, I, w- I also uh, consulted on data science. Mm-hmm. And um, I consider myself, I call myself a statistician Hmm. or decision intelligence engineer, depending on my mood. But I think statistician resonates with me the most among the um, already existing older disciplines because it is so careful and philosophical. It's really a a way of seeing the world and of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not just a bunch of formulas. So how's that for a for an answer to your question. I didn't get to the Google part, but I figure you would, uh, no, that, uh, you would prompt me there in a bit. <laughs> sure. So, uh, yeah, you were mentioning that, uh, you know, you, you kind of resonate the most with the statistician. So uh, coming back to, you know, this journey, so uh, you mentioned you started playing with Excel. So so when did you get started with, let's say, coding or, or kind of uh, playing with larger data sets? How did that happen? So with coding, the way that that happened was I ended up getting hold of a data set that had a million rows in it. Mm-hmm. And I attempted to open this thing in Excel. Mm-hmm. And that did not work in those good old days. And yeah. I remember staring at my my computer screen, which had frozen, and just having this intense anger. So I trudged off to the library. And I demanded of the, the librarian, what am I supposed to do about this situation? Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up in South Africa. And um, I have to say that um, I didn't actually have very fast internet. And I remember the the internet in our um, university computer lab, goodness, I'm sort of even embarrassed to talk about this. But um, it was so slow that the, that the internet sort of homepage mm-hmm. took 10 minutes to load if it was in the middle of the day and all the other students were in the computer lab. So I'm only going to go Google this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so off I went to the library and demanded to know what I could do about this. Mm-hmm. And um, she took me to a section that had programming books in it. Okay. And so I, I had sat there and, and I um, got hold of MATLAB. Mm-hmm. And I... I figured out that, okay, it was possible to order a license and then we could get a, a student license on a computer and I'd be able to open this data set that I had really mm-hmm. wanted to, to work with. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually at no point did, uh, during maybe the first year of tinkering with Excel, and oh, by the way, the, the entire time um, since... Um, since uh, early teen years, I guess, I had um, known that there was such a thing as macros in Excel and you could go and mm-hmm. play with the, the visual basic background. But I had never realized that that or MATLAB was actually coding. Mm-hmm. And it, it must have somehow that, that blind spot continued for a long time because I, I heard about these um, computer science students mm-hmm. calling what they were doing, programming mm-hmm. or coding. And um, I just sort of figured that what I was doing couldn't possibly be that. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And it was quite fun to find out that um, I'd just very accidentally Mm -hmm. built these skills Mm -hmm. and had them and was able to get started with things like Java and C++ fairly easily. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I kind of stumbled onto it via MATLAB. I haven't used MATLAB in ages, actually. Some nostalgia when I think about it. I'm a I'm a lover of R. Okay. And, uh, I suppose a Python when I need it kind of girl. 
So I was basically asking about the journey from, you know, starting your journey with MATLAB to till today. So, you know, how has it evolved? What kind of projects? Because you also mentioned that you were consulting for, uh, for a good period in between. So just wanted well, to... Was, yeah, there was all kinds of things along the way. Um, I, I can actually tell you the, that the day that I went from MATLAB to R, mm-hmm. And I apologize to anyone who's a huge MATLAB fan because I actually haven't used MATLAB since that day. And I don't know if MATLAB reformed its behavior since. So I apologize if there's any, any fans that I'm going to offend. Um, but I remember this, this day, I, I really, really wanted to make some black charts, mm-hmm. which were facing the wrong way, starting at the top and going into negative numbers. Okay. And in MATLAB, I had been fiddling for a few hours trying to get that to work. Mm-hmm. And it was either my own incompetence or MATLAB's, who knows who's at fault. But for whatever reason, this is difficult. And it shouldn't be, but it was. And there I was, um, face to desk, I think, several times after, after hours of this struggle. Mm-hmm. And I decided someone had mentioned R to me that week and I decided, all right, let's pull up R and see how long this takes. Mm-hmm. And it took me half an hour to get the plot I wanted. <laughs> okay. Since then, I have, I have just, <laughs> you know, you fall in love. That's how you fall in love with something. From mm-hmm. not knowing R at all to having this, this thing that I just could not do in that lab. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was a great moment. And, um, you know, I like to say about R, it's very easy to love R. Okay. Yes. For data exploration, if if you're not trying to build uh, the most robust, permanent, reliable systems, but you just want to explore a data set really quickly, I don't know what anyone's going to do to convince me that there's something better than R out there. Okay. Uh, and then you started working with Google in uh, 2014. So, so how did that happen? Uh, and what role did you start with? The way that that had happened was um, actually I, I was referred by a Googler and mm-hmm. the way that I, I met this Googler was mm-hmm. I had been um, minding my own business, sitting around dressed as a punch card mm-hmm. and the, the Googler asked the head of department, who's that student who's dressed as a punch card with legitimate Fortran, let me tell you. It was a, a real punch card. It, I had I had put that, looked up the, the Fortran punching and done it. Uh, mm-hmm. Such a nerd. Anyway, and the head of the department said, oh, that's just kind of fancy. She was dressed as a Sigma field last year. That intrigued uh, the Googler, and we we got to, to talking and um, sort of uh, formed a friendship, which then led to his referring me to, to Google. I started as a statistician. Mm-hmm. So what were uh, some of the initial, let's say, problems or projects you, you started working on when you joined Google? So one of the one of the projects uh, early on was in getting maps free of duplicate entries, Google Maps. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to search for your local cinema and then find five copies of it. Um, yeah, I remember that was different data. Yeah, pretty pretty <laughs> confusing. Yeah, and yeah. um, this is a this is a pretty interesting problem because how do you actually define duplicates? Mm-hmm. That's not that straightforward. Correct. And in order to measure them and in order to figure out whether or not you're successfully eliminating them, in addition to that, you need good processes for measuring and verifying. Mm -hmm. You need good processes for checking up and um, actually, for example, calling the businesses up and um, asking them to verify whether or not um, their entry is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, need, you need to get ground truth somehow. Mm-hmm. And figuring out all the details around that um, is, is quite, a, quite a big task. Yeah, so that, was a, that was an interesting one early on. It's interesting that this uh, project uh, came to a statistician. So, you know, uh, uh, so what, uh, so did the project involve some kind of uh, statistical techniques uh, uh, as a part of the work or uh, it was mostly, let's say, data cleaning or as you mentioned, kind of verifying the uh, data capturing itself? 
so yeah, um, it certainly did involve statistical techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, there were hypotheses to be tested. However, as with many such projects, it wasn't as I was the only statistician on that particular one. Mm-hmm. When that happens, that tends to mean that there's a lot of other stuff that needs to get done before mm-hmm. you can do the heavy lifting or mm-hmm. even what to a statistician is light lifting. I remember uh, hanging a lot of logistic regression on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the, those details ironed out. And also the, the politics of getting people to actually agree with what we think we mean by duplicates and what we think our goals are going to be for this project. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often, in real life, not finished before the statistician comes on board. And in some cases, it's not even started before the statistician comes on board. So mm-hmm. there's plenty to do before the, that um, math makes sense. And what I see out there in the wild, mm-hmm. and this happens everywhere, is that statisticians expect that their work is going to be primarily that heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And they don't take enough time to verify that what has been requested of them was well enough framed that that heavy lifting makes sense. And sometimes that folks have only the skills of that heavy lifting and not the skills of being the team's decision maker and being the team's data engineer and verifying the data quality and so forth. In that kind of situation, you may as well not even have the statistician because they're going to just work uh, very hard and possibly quite uselessly at something that isn't um, well-framed enough to be worth doing. Mm-hmm. But that concept, I think, was was not something that uh, was a shocker to me. Mm-hmm. I think it is to many statisticians who focus primarily on the mathematical side of things and then exit grad school and, and meet the, the, the real world in a rude awakening. I've been fairly aware of this and actually quite interested in it and interested in the process by which we turn information into action and interested in the end-to-end thing. So I, I had, I was quite keen to take on projects where framing the context was part of it and thinking through the data collection and the data quality and the details was part of it uh, until eventually you get to that last bit. And you have to understand that that last bit in terms of the time um, mm-hmm. from the team involved is uh, quite a small piece. So if, if a statistician wants to be working only on heavy lifting, they need to be part of a team that is well enough staffed by all the other people who will be doing all the other stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. And quite often that's, uh, that's not um, what organizations have. Now, within Google, I've worked on um, many different teams. Mm-hmm. We have some teams where it will be one statistician and uh, or one data scientist and then many engineers and that data scientist has to do most of the end-to-end stuff. Uh, we have other teams where we have large groups of statisticians who are getting well-vetted requests from a much larger support organization, mm-hmm. uh, and they are working primarily only on the heavy lifting. So we've got we've got all kinds here. It's actually organizationally uh, very interesting. Sure, sure. And uh, you know, how did this journey from being a data scientist or statistician to uh, someone who is involved in decision? Uh, intelligence uh, came through so i mean uh, did you at some point say that you know actually the w- thing which matters most as you mentioned is probably bigger than data science and that's that's how you started moving into decision intelligence uh, so how did this happen hello listeners with less than 50 days to go Data Hack Summit is shaping up great. We have more than 50 speakers, more than 15 hack sessions, and six workshops, and we could not be more excited. We'll talk about the latest developments in AI, machine learning, and deep learning. Join more than thousands of people at Data Hack Summit to experience the world where humans meet artificial intelligence on 22nd to 24th November 2018 in Bangalore. 
बुक योर टिकट बिफोर दिस अलाउट taken a small vacation from decision intelligence okay <laughs> focus occasionally on only the statistics side mm-hmm. whereas i had spent my life training for the end to end thing mm-hmm. and that combination of different fields of study i selected them to be able to handle any part of that end to end process right? along with picking up um as much applied engineering stuff just in my spare time not in formal courses so i i had wanted to do all of it mm-hmm. and i had studied really hard to be able to do all of it and for a while i focused only on the stats part but mm-hmm. how, because i had very interested in the whole thing my mm-hmm. entire life mm-hmm. uh, eventually it made sense that i would go back to um working on all of it rather than just on that narrow component because it's uh, it's actually quite a risky thing for statisticians mm-hmm. to sign up especially on new teams mm-hmm. teams that that don't have a a well established statistical process and i'm saying statisticians i should, i should just say data scientists mm-hmm. it's a risky thing for data science folks to join teams that don't quite know what they're doing when it comes to turning information into action mm-hmm. because if the rest of the team doesn't know what they're doing the data scientist the statistician is useless and that's a risky thing for a career it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot more dangerous to to be right in the middle of a thing with very shaky uh, bookends start and finish than to be able to work on any of it and to make sure that whoever it is that is going to do that data science part gets mm-hmm. work projects that are very nicely grouped and framed that yeah. actually make that decision uh, data scientist impactful mm-hmm. very easy not to be impactful if everyone else doesn't know their role and so i find myself now working on all parts mm-hmm. but possibly having the most impact when i involve myself in the early stages of the project because that way i can make sure that whoever it is who has the skill to do the math correctly is doing that correct math for good and useful purposes sure so uh and you know uh, how are some of the things which we do in data science different from uh let's say decision intelligence so uh, can you give us an example of uh, how decision intelligence uh, uh, is being used to solve let's say a particular problem either within google or outside sure so you you shouldn't think of decision intelligence as a different animal from data science mm-hmm. decision intelligence wouldn't concern itself with the development of fundamental methodology that is not for particular application so any kind of data science endeavor so let's say machine learning ai endeavors where their purpose is to um enable in theory some kind of application to be possible that kind of thing um i would i would refer to as data science research and and that is is not part of um what decision intelligence um would be concerned with uh, now the applied stuff how to actually take some particular information and turn it into um uh, the enablement of decisions mm-hmm. that part is um decision intelligence and so applied data science on its own without extra input um and extra ideas around how to say think about creating metrics operationalization how to think about actually building say you want to use surveys how do you think about the construction of those surveys data science actually doesn't teach you that stuff mm-hmm. so you will go and you will analyze a bunch of data from a bunch of surveys that are dead on arrival if you don't know how to think through actually constructing them Now if you wanted to make a decision that involved survey data mm. you would need to first frame the decision mm. you would need to think about how to construct those surveys of social science data science doesn't teach you that and then you get to the data science part mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so 
if you only have the data science bit, the project might just flop. Mm-hmm. You need to add that extra muscle, if you will, from these additional disciplines, from the social managerial sciences to get the whole thing done well. Data science, as you know it, or at least the applied part, not the we're going to be professors working on theoretical measure theory kind of mm-hmm. stuff, um, the, the applied pieces, they are fully in it, sure. in this decision intelligence process. They just don't stand alone without the extra bits that they need. So data scientists aren't going to change their work so much. Mm-hmm. They're just going to rely on additional teammates who know their own part, mm-hmm. their own responsibilities, and they know how to make the data scientists more effective. And do you think there are aspects of uh, uh, study outside data science, which uh, if a data scientist would know, would make them better at solving these uh, problems related to decisions? Or uh, do you think this is the best way kind of, uh, so one person focuses on data science and then the other person looks after, let's say, some of the behavioral aspects or other aspects. So, so how how do you think about it? How, how should, what's the ideal way to kind of solve what decision problems? So I, I don't want it to sound like this has to be one person per role. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, it would be it would be very much counter to a lot of my own history, where I have had to do <laughs> every part myself um, yeah. and play each of those roles as one person on uh, on a project. So it's possible to have one person do all of it. But I also realized that. If that's your hiring plan to hire teams that are these one-person armies, you're going to be complaining about a hiring shortage very quickly, skills shortage, because it's it's pretty difficult to find that worker who can do all of it, who is the expert statistician, the expert machine learning engineer, the expert analyst who's got lightning fast coding, who also understands a lot about those social science aspects, who also gets the business, understands how to frame decisions, understands how to think about impact and action. That's a tough hire. Yeah, super so unicorn. Instead, so instead, what I say we should think about is to think of these as things that need to be done or roles mm-hmm. and ensure that someone is covering what needs to be covered. Whether mm-hmm. that's one person or 10 people, or if it's a really large team, then you have multiple copies for each mm-hmm. thing. Because, sure. of course, you know, right in, in the real life, um, sometimes some projects are far too big to be done by one or even 10 people. You need multiple people. You need large teams. And if you don't have those teams, you can't do a project like that, just how it is. Um, the key thing, though, is just to make sure that you are covering all those necessary components someone's got it and uh, on that note uh, can you tell a bit more about you know your team and what does your day-to-day look like typically so so how do you spend your time uh, and then how is your team structured so i've uh, i've just recently pivoted a little bit mm-hmm. what i work on today is helping the outside world mm-hmm. do better at some of this stuff So I work with uh, Google Cloud's large customers Mm -hmm. to help them figure out how to build their own teams Mm -hmm. and how to get these these projects booked right, started right, and staffed correctly. So maybe I'm back to being a consultant, um, (laughs) working working in a a lot of uh, consulting capacity, Mm -hmm. um, helping others do this. And And then... uh, I spent quite quite a long time um, doing this very actively within Google, but uh, now I'm I'm helping those outside Google enjoy the same benefits. Sure. And and what uh, motivated this change? So uh, this pivot in your uh, role, which you mentioned, so uh, moving to a role which uh, helps uh, more like outside world or Google stop. Yeah, yeah. So. I, I was very, very proud of what we've managed to achieve at Google. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a little bit like um, osmosis in, in chemistry. At some point, you realize that you are in a very high concentration of goodness. Mm-hmm. And you notice that outside of this bubble that you're in, um, <laughs> there, there is uh, not as much 
experience or knowledge of what you've started to almost take for granted when mm -hmm. you are. And I, I realized that um, it's very exciting to, to be able to do a lot of good where these perspectives aren't um, taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I, I was enjoying the um, success that our teams had had at Google a little bit too much, and I, I wanted the, the challenge of helping the rest of the world get to the same point. Sure, sure. makes sense. Coming to, uh, so I've seen you've been uh, uh, almost, uh, you've been an advocate of uh, democratizing AI and, uh, you know, uh, using it in safe and effective manner. So can you tell us a bit about that, your perspective and uh, and maybe some of the work which is happening in this area? Oh, absolutely. First off, when it comes to AI, mm. I think the entire world is making the mistake of talking about it like it is some kind of holy water, <laughs> when really it's just water. Sure. And what I mean by this is, if you, if you have this mental model that you're dealing with holy water, you start to think that it's only accessible to the few that are, I don't know, initiated, PhDs, the, the professors, that this is only for those select few. And that it is some kind of special magic. Really, on the other hand, it is simple and should be accessible to everyone. It is not as magical as people think. Mm -hmm. Science fiction gives it a, a, a completely incorrect reputation. Really, it's just water. But like water, even though it's a little bit boring, even if you if you will, um, a, a little bit every day mm -hmm. and easy and simple it's very vital and important mm -hmm. and it does you a lot of good and i think what we need to start doing um on the whole is stop talking about machine learning as this science fiction thing that's only for a few people and start seeing it as a really simple thing that is so useful that it can accelerate your business and you can instead point to the successes. They can point to the bottom line. You're doing it not because it's shiny or magical or fancy or high-tech. You're doing it because, well, here's the dollar amount it made you. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I think it's, it's very powerful and very good for everyone. And the way that people should think about it is simply as a different way to communicate your wishes to computers. Mm -hmm. So, Traditional programming is about communicating your wishes through instructions, mm. explicit instructions. Now you can communicate your wishes a second way, with examples instead of explicit instructions. And we as humans, we already have both of these modes of communication. Uh, if you think about it, sometimes you want to tell someone exactly how they should do a thing for you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you want to say, hey, watch me do a couple, and then you figure it out yourself. And we used to only have one of those modes of communication. Mm -hmm. Now we've got the second one. And why not enjoy it? Why not take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. Now, some folks um, are not, they, they're not lucky enough to have enjoyed even that first mode of communication. They uh, have never tried programming a computer. I I highly encourage everyone to try that because it's also really not that hard. If anyone told you you need to read a computer science textbook or, uh, you know, take a whole degree, mm -hmm. uh, you, you really don't. Uh, I was doing it without even knowing I was doing it. it. There's plenty of lovely tutorials. If you have a computer, you can just try it. And similarly, once you've tried that one, trying the easy mode with machine learning, the, the second mode of communication with machine learning, is that it's also easy. You can get computers to do stuff for you. You can explain yourself in one or two ways. Have them both. It's for everyone. It's powerful and useful. And the reason it's um, wonderful is that some things are really hard to come up with instructions for. Mm -hmm. An example I use over and over is when you look at a photograph, you just know what's in that photograph. But you mm -hmm. can't actually tell me what you did with the pixels in the photo to be able to say that that photo is a photo of your best friend mm -hmm. or that that photo has a cat in it. 
you can't tell me what your brain is doing with those pixels because you don't know how your brain does it. Your brain just does it. That's yeah. eons of evolution that you're benefiting from and you cannot say what's happening with those pixels. And so because you can't even say how you do this task, how are you supposed to explicitly instruct a computer to do it? You yeah. can't. Yeah. But what you can do instead is give that computer a bunch of examples yeah. and have it figure it out itself. So it saves you from having to come up with instructions. And coming up with instructions is just really hard sometimes. Really simple, really powerful thing. Everyone should be taking advantage of it. Interesting. And how do you see, uh, you know, AI evolving in next, uh, let's say, three to five years? So what changes do you see happening in the domain specifically and then the larger world which gets impacted because of these uh, technology getting more democratized? What I'm what I'm really excited about is the um, growth of the applied side of machine learning and AI. Mm-hmm. So, so an analogy that I have for this is the analogy of the kitchen, the analogy of the the kitchen appliances, microwaves, and cooking. Mm-hmm. What machine learning researchers work on is, in this analogy, building the general purpose tools, the microwaves, the ovens, and so forth, mm-hmm. and They build that tool and expect that one day someone else will find a use for this tool. They're not building it for the specific restaurant that's going to want to use it. Mm -hmm. So that's the research side. And then the applied side is the restaurant whose goal is to innovate in a recipe and then produce dishes. And this restaurant will use these tools. Now, in the past, imagine before microwaves exist, If you want something like a microwave, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to invent one and build one yourself and then use that microwave to create innovative recipes and then use those recipes to create dishes. Mm -hmm. Eventually, though, people notice that this microwave thing is pretty useful and more of them get made. Eventually, there are warehouses upon warehouses of these microwaves and ovens and blenders that are available to all. Mm-hmm. And now you can start using them without building it yourself. In the past with machine learning, in order to make use of machine learning, you had to be able to understand exactly how the algorithm works well enough even to, to build it from scratch. Now you can apply it without doing that because those things have been so nicely packaged up. So what that means is that everyone else can now start standing on the shoulders of giants Mm-hmm. They can now start using what the researchers have built, and they don't need to be researchers themselves. And this is really exciting because before, democratization wasn't really available. Yeah. You had to have that PhD. You had to be a researcher to be doing this. Now, there is enough wonderful work done by researchers that the rest of us. So there's going to be an acceleration, I think, mm-hmm. in the application. And the application by non-experts or newcomers to the space. And I think that there's going to be a lot of creativity. People with all kinds of different perspectives are now empowered and able to use this technology. So that's really, really exciting. And I think as part of that, it's going to make sense for a lot of organizations, Mm -hmm. Google included in this list, to make tools easier and easier so Mm -hmm. that more and more people can start using these things. So it'll be not only will it require less and less training to get started, but the tooling will get better and better so that it takes less time to do the same thing, which I think is is really wonderful. Imagine when when those barriers to entry become so low, anyone can begin to play and flourish and make beautiful things very quickly. I'm just so excited to see what the world can be able to do with it. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, if you have to give uh, a few maybe tips or advice to business leaders uh, uh, who want to leverage AI or who can who could solve these problems using AI, not necessarily building it, as you, as you mentioned, uh, what would be, you know, the top two or three things which they should keep in their mind? Hi there. Are you a business leader trying to make sense what artificial intelligence and machine learning do for you? 
Artificial intelligence and machine learning are disrupting several industries across the globe. As a leader, you not only need to understand what AI and ML can deliver for you, but also the best ways to implement them in your business. If you want to learn more about AI and ML for business, check out our course AI and ML for Business Leaders on trainings.analyticswithya.com. Join today and get some additional material about how to implement AI in your business. Well, besides the um, hire the right people advice, which just mm -hmm. is a, a universal yeah. piece that applies to all projects, I'd say do things in the right order is a huge one. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes from an academic background, that is very focused on the, the building of the microwaves, and that's an analogy for machine learning algorithms, then if you spent your whole life thinking about algorithms first and foremost, when you attempt to apply machine learning, the first thing that you're going to think about there is, again, algorithms. That's not a very good starting place. Where you should start instead is thinking about decisions. And in the case of machine learning specifically, the, there are two sets of decisions. Mm -hmm. One is the final decision, the statistical one, which is launch the whole system or don't launch it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the decisions that the system is built to make, so the, the outputs, the labels, if you will, that come out of the machine learning system. Mm -hmm. The place to start is to think about those. And the people who are best qualified to do that are not the data scientists usually. It's actually the business folks who understand the business. So the right order to do things in is to think first, what is the system going to output for us? And to let yourself relax and, and let go of all that, that anxiety, if you have it, around the fact that this is machine learning, capital M, capital L, and therefore something magical and special and mathy. Just imagine that it's, I don't know, it's humans outputting those labels. If you could just get workers to do these tasks for you very quickly, what are those outputs that you would want from them? And as part of that, you need to remember that nothing is perfect. You shouldn't expect your human workers to be perfect. You shouldn't expect your machine learning systems to be perfect. They all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so you should plan for those mistakes and ask yourself which kind of mistake is worse than which other kind of mistake and how much worse. And how would we score the performance of this thing? And how would we know if the performance is good enough? What's the minimum that we're willing to accept? Hash all of that out first before you even start hiring anyone. Once you have that in place, don't go to the algorithms either. Mm -hmm. Next thing to think about is your inputs, your data that you're going to use to actually construct these models. What's a model? It's just a fancy word for recipe. So uh, you're going to use these uh, these features, if you will, these uh, variables, inputs, ingredients, if you like, and you're going to use them in some combination to get to that final output that you want. Don't worry about the combination. Don't worry about the algorithms that get you the combination. Worry first about what those potential promising ingredients might be that might be related to the output that might be worth pursuing. And so you've got two players coming in here. Mm -hmm. You've got the of course, data engineers, because if you're going to do this at scale, you're yeah. not going to be able to lift and move this around uh, quickly and on your laptop uh, with a spreadsheet. Mm. Um, you're going to need some, some help. It, data engineering becomes quite a sophisticated thing at scale. So you need to make sure that you've got people in place that can actually wrangle that data for you. In addition, you need analysts. You need analysts who are going to look at what's available and use their common sense and their ability to quickly see as much of the data as possible to figure out which potential inputs are worth pursuing. You might be spoiled for choice and you can't shove everything into your algorithm. You're going to need a short list of um, what's most likely to pay off. And the way that you get that is through analytics. So you need to expect that you're going to do a bit of uh, getting to know your input mm -hmm. before you even think about which algorithms. And it's only once you've dealt with the output and the input mm -hmm. that you should go to, all right, 
which libraries, which packages are available to me, which algorithms am I going to try, how much computing power do I have, how long does this all take? Then you get your machine learning engineers to take those short lists of and put them through those algorithms. So order is really important here. Output, input, algorithm. Please don't do it the opposite way around. The, the worst thing you can do is, is say, I like the idea that I'm going to have deep learning. Great. Where can I shove deep learning? Okay, fine. I have data somewhere. Mm. I've found a bunch of inputs. Mm. I'm going to shove deep learning on these inputs. What possible output might these inputs give me? That is entirely the wrong way to do things. And if that works out for you, you got more lucky than you deserved. My, my <laughs> strong advice is to do it the opposite way. That uh, truly rings a bell because uh, I've seen people taking that route, uh, at least in the first part where they say, okay, you know, here here is the algorithm which I know or here is deep learning and then I'll use it in my problems. So, so completely relate to that. And, and another another piece of advice is, uh, and this is related, but it, it's sort of um, a bigger picture version of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You need to check which part of data science you're looking for and not rush headlong into, say, machine learning when the one you needed was statistical inference or analytics. Mm-hmm. And folks make mistakes in understanding the difference between them. They think sometimes they think it's it's a difference of software. R means it's statistics, and Python means it's machine learning. I'm cringing even saying this. Um, please don't think that way. Some folks will think that it's um, a matter of algorithm or math. So if it's a t-test, that's called statistics, and if it's a neural network, that's called machine learning, and if it's a histogram, that's called analytics. Uh, I also really don't recommend that because mm-hmm. if you're smart, you can take the same piece of math and apply it to any of these. I mean, you could you could do some perverse thing involving a whole machine learning system that first generates histograms if you wanted. Um, you can make that work. Yeah, if you were if you were stubborn. So the the thing that actually separates listeners, let me have you guess: analytics, none. Statistical inference, one. Machine learning, many. None, one, many. None, one, many, what? Mm -hmm. None, one, many decisions. So if you are making no decisions and you just want to get inspired, then analytics is the one you need. And Mm -hmm. you can use all kinds of techniques. You can use deep learning to get inspired. There's all kinds of unsupervised machine learning techniques whose entire purpose it is just to cluster stuff for you and inspire you. Analytics, that's um, best to think of it in terms of analytics. And it's best not to take it any more seriously than you would anything else that comes out of analytics. It's just a way of showing you what's here in your data. And then you look at that and you ask yourself, uh, am I inspired to maybe do a rigorous follow-up or um, that thinking differently about the space or to um, build an actual proper machine learning system based on it, you're making one or a few large important decisions under uncertainty. That is statistical inference. And and the thing there is that you don't get Mm do-overs. You make the decision and then you have to hold your breath and see if you get punished by life. (laughs) Whereas with machine learning, you end up getting immediate feedback on a lot of repeated decisions. And so you can use that feedback to learn and improve and make a recipe that is for automating many new decisions. And then, of course, if you actually want that recipe to work, then you're going to need a statistical inference point. Where are you? Should I not launch it? Does the thing actually work in a population of new data? And so the piece of advice here is, please, for goodness sake, don't just expect that you're you're going to do machine learning when your business does not need that and it needs you to make a one-off decision for which you don't do machine learning, you do statistical inference, or all you want is to get some inspiration from data that's also not machine learning. And so please pick the right area of data science for the job because even though you can use the same algorithm for any of them, mm-hmm. the process 
and attitude and the way the team all have to interact together, that changes depending on which area you're focused on. So you really need to know that up front and you shouldn't, um, you should let your needs, your, your applied problem decide that and not whether or not it sounds fun on your resume that you've done a machine learning project. There have been many situations where I've seen folks come up to me who have attempted to shove machine learning where it really doesn't belong, mm-hmm. where, for example, it is a one-off decision <laughs> without the, that, you know, uh, repeated feedback. Mm-hmm. You can't take a machine learning approach. Yeah. Oh, and then the last, the last one. Sometimes I, I like to joke a little bit that um, if uh, if there would be some words written on my gravestone one day, they will be these words to live by: split your data. Um, <laughs> I'm completely obsessed with that idea, um, and I think everyone else should be. Yeah. Splitting your data is the way that that you can have your cake and eat it too. It's pretty much the best idea around, I think. Mm -hmm. Look, when you do analytics and you just get inspired from data, if you've studied statistics, if you've studied data science, you know that you can't use the same data point for inspiration and rigor. If you get inspired first and then you ask, is the thing that inspired me here in these data? Well, of course, it's here in these data. It inspired you to ask the question in the first place. So you can't do your hypothesis testing or your machine learning performance check. You can't do that on the same data set where you did the exploration or the training. And so in the past, when there wasn't much data to go around, you had to choose one or the other. Either you get inspired, but then you can't really take this inspiration seriously and you can't check if it's worth anything, if it holds anywhere outside the data where you found it. Or you have to blindly go meditate in a closet and frame everything up really carefully and come up with a question. Mm. And then one time, one time only, check whether the data bears it out. Now that you've got more data, why choose? Why still get stuck in that old mindset? Now you can have both. Now you can use the data to get inspired and use other data to check if your inspiration is worth anything. And then what the validation data set is, the third one in machine learning, is it lets you have do-overs. Because mm-hmm. the previous way, your rigorous, I'm going to take it seriously data set, the one for testing, mm-hmm. you only get to use it one time. Yeah. And that doesn't change. You still only get to use it one time. And if anyone's going to shout at me that you can do multiple comparisons correction in statistics, yeah, you can do that if you plan all your hypothesis tests all together. Actually, you're just asking one time, one big pre-planned question. If you don't do that, you're cheating. So if you want to adjust your approach and reuse this data set, you can't. When you open this testing data set, you've learned it. So you realize, okay, if I'm going to explore this data, Luckily, now I can I can think a little bit about what I've seen there. But whatever question I'm going to pick to pick seriously and um, ask on my precious one-use data set, mm-hmm. that question had better be a good one because uh, I'm going to burn that data set by asking it. Got inspired to ask that question in the first place is you know someone smart and trustworthy, mm-hmm. and you're definitely not just going to trust a dumb machine that's you know. A dumb algorithm, just put a line through it blindly without thinking very hard. And you don't really have machine learning accessible as an approach. You only have that really human driven, well thought through exploration that turns into the hypothesis that you test with the final data set. But if you have an interim data set, that's like a soft test where you don't have to take it that seriously. You don't have to burn the whole data set. Then you now can start forming an opinion any which way you want in the training data set, whether it's by a competent analyst or it's by consulting the tea leaves or it's uh, by some machine learning algorithm that you don't understand what it's doing. Now it's a free-for-all. You can let all of them create a model and then you take those models to this disposable data set that lets you do a full test drive that gives you the do-overs. If you don't like what you see there, you go back and try again. 
<laughs> and of course, the quality of testing there isn't as good as the final thing because you are in some sense polluting it by using it, but it's better than nothing. It's a way that you get to refine and filter and throw out the bad candidate. So without that third data set, you can't really take a, a machine learning approach. It's that third data set that allows you now to let these uh, mindless algorithms have a go mm-hmm. very quickly. And then you can see if they are worth burning that final day set, opening it up and, uh, and taking the risk that uh, maybe what you've built doesn't work after all. Yeah. So splitting your, splitting your data is what makes all of this tick. And it is pretty much the most important concept here. And it is the, the thing that makes machine learning possible. And so any team that's going about all this stuff without deeply respecting what splitting the data actually brings, mm. don't have a good process for splitting data, they are unnecessarily uh, hurting themselves. It's just such an easy and such a powerful thing. Yeah. And it's worth meditating on if you're a data scientist, and it's definitely worth encouraging teams to split data properly. Correct, correct. No, that's, uh, uh, you know, really... Uh very well explained and, and I like the way you kind of uh, gave an analogy and, and still explained it in, in very, very simple terms. And uh, it is one of the most uh, powerful concepts in data science and machine learning. And have you have you actually noticed that three isn't enough? Mm-hmm. Four, four is the best way. Mm-hmm. Like they teach you three data sets in school, but you get a lot out of a fourth data set. The validation data set in machine learning, in order for it to be a validation data set, you're not allowed to train explicitly on it. So technically, the only thing that you're allowed to do with it is get the performance score. What that means, right, and this requirement that validation is blind in order for it to technically be validation, what that means is that you're not allowed to debug with it. But of course, what happens is, right, engineers, right? They will go and train some models and then they'll take those to validation. The performance Mm -hmm. is miserable. And then every bone in their body screams, but why? I must know what has gone wrong here. Why is this Mm -hmm. performance so low? And they open it up and they debug in. When they look at those results, when they look at those individual instances where things have gone wrong, they will adjust their solution and their training approach explicitly to that information. And so we can expect in the next round that the next time you validate, you won't do so badly on them. So you are essentially training to the validation data set. So technically what you should do is say, all right, well, I've seen these instances. I had better move them to the training data to honor the fact that I have trained on them. Seems yeah. straightforward, except that's only okay if you have debugged at random. Mm-hmm. But most engineers don't debug at random. They go right to the most heinous failures. They'll find the worst outliers, whatever it is, they'll pick them all up, they'll adjust the solution to target just them. And so if they leave them in the validation data set, the performance is going to be too good to be true. <laughs> if they take them out of the validation data set and move them to training, then the validation data set is a much less honest and much more weak data set. So as a result of that, you've now burned this seatbelt that you have against overfitting because that's what uh, validation represents. If you want to debug, you need this fourth data set that is explicitly for debugging. Now, the good news about that is that you can take that out of the training data as needed. You don't need to pre-specify it at the beginning. But you do need to have a separate one. So you'll train on some piece of your training data. You'll have this other debugging data set where you can go and see how the individual instances have reacted to this uh, Mm -hmm. model of yours. And you can train as much as you wish on the individual heinous failures. But when it comes to validation, you should only get that single performance metric. So really four data sets is how many you need. And when you don't have much data, that's a big request I'm making of you. Mm-hmm. But so many data scientists today, they are drowning in data. 
They need data engineers around just to move all this data around. If you've got that much data, what excuse do you have to complain about four data sets? Yeah. That's the easiest thing in the world. Just make use of it. Mm, that's true. And and what do you call this fourth data set? Because usually it's the first three which which uh, you know formally kind of have the name uh, in the in the machine learning jargon. So if I refer to it as the debugging data set, um, I mm. like that best. Um, mm-hmm. I've also seen evaluation data set. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, what the the data set, um, the way in which TensorFlow, for example, treats mm-hmm. evaluation, um, that thing is a debugging data set, and you should have a separate one set aside for validation. Sure, sure. Great. A lot of insights, and uh, I love the way you were, you know, explaining things in very, very simple terms, but but yet very powerful insights. Thanks, Cassie.